So tonight I'd like to speak about radical accountability. <clears throat> I think it's an important topic that's kind of making my rounds in the different retreats I do with this, um, offering this talk. And sometimes people have crossed over at other retreats and there's a kind of a moan when I mention the title. <laughs> Undaunted, I continue. <laughs> But it's, uh, it's, I, I feel like I'll give it a year and spread it out, and then I, you won't hear about it again. <laughs> um, and so anyway, I would like to begin uh, this by um, uh, admitting, confessing that I'm an amateur, very amateur scientist. And it doesn't mean that I perform experiments, but I like to read about science. And um, especially around theoretical science like uh, the string theories and also uh, quantum mechanics because I see so much of Dharma coming together uh, in the possibility of science. And, I, uh, and it excites me uh, to sort of put a Dharma understanding on some of the edges of those interpretations. But in any case, uh, as I probably misunderstand quantum mechanics, uh, at the microcosmic level, the level of the very small, the world is uh, very chaotic, very chaotic. And to the point where things will disappear or two things can be in the same place at the same time. and It's random and completely um, uh, uh, by um, just uh, happenstance as to what's occurring. Things disappearing, appearing. Now, there's a component experience that's actually very close to that, that deep meditation can offer. And that is when uh, the inward experience, much of what Carol was talking about last night, that um, the, sort of the random quality of experience starts breaking down, breaking apart. And it disappears and reappears and doesn't make sense. Uh, and even thought can break down into, uh, into nonsensical, uh, nonsense syllables. And that's within the range of, of uh, a person's practice who has developed a certain level of concentration. So I think that those two probably have some similarity, if not uh, we're actually entering the world of the quantum mechanics at that level of perception. I don't know that. But I do know that when we come out, when uh, there is the microcosmic view, suddenly the world gets very smooth from the large and if you look out from our vantage point now, quite likely you'll see a very smoothed-out universe. And so you wonder how, when things are so chaotic at the microscopic, how they can be so smooth at the macroscopic, macrocosmic. And I think that the answer lies in the fact that when we look out, 
we look out through the barrier of thought. And the conceptual way that we form life is very smooth. As Carol again mentioned last night, it has to be. Because we have to be able to function. We have to be able to know the door, where the door is, and we have to know ourselves from that door to be able to pass through it. have to know how to get back home and all the other functional things we do in the world. And without the smoothness of that conceptual overlay, within the chaos of, of the very small, we wouldn't be able to perform that. And so you begin to see that what the mind does to the world is to make it functional and make it unnavigable so that we can actually get through it and do the things that we need to do uh, in our life. Now the problem is, is that thought holds that chaos at bay by thinking. So we have a, a barrier that has been placed between the reality that lies on the other side and the concept that keeps us safe on this side. Once you have a barrier of concepts, then you have the formation of a story on the conceptual side of that barrier. And you have the accumulation of recognition and memory that accumulates from the thought side. And once you have that, you also have a storyteller. So what what was um, started initiated for protection, for the smoothness of being able to navigate, becomes a reality of and for itself. Now, the boundary formation doesn't just stop with the very small to the very large. It continues. We, once we have a storyteller, the storyteller... Uh, looks around for objects that he or she has to defend against. And every time a new threat arises, a new boundary is imposed. For instance, the outside environment and the inside, what I call me, the surface ground of my mind and body. There's a barrier there. This is me, this is not me. And so, for some sake, I form that boundary in order to be protected from the external forces that lie outside. And I do all sorts of protective actions to keep myself safe from the perceived threat of the external environment. Okay, so that's another boundary. And yet again, we form a boundary within this body-mind. We say the body is not really me. I have a body, but few of us would say I am this body. We own a body, is more commonly felt. And so then we are encased in the mind. And the body is sort of the organism that belongs to us. Now notice as we go through the boundary formation that the sense of self gets narrowed, the space where the sense of self can dwell, gets, becomes narrower, becomes more confined. We start painting ourselves into an, error, 
an ever smaller corner. So now we're in the mind, but that's not the end of it. Within this mind, there are components that we like and we perceive as being helpful and useful and perhaps spiritual. And there are components that threaten the image of the storyteller and therefore are barricaded and warded off. So those areas that we don't like, those areas that hold a kind of threat to the the image of me, we shadow, we just deny. And we own the place, we accommodate the ever smaller, narrowing corridor of the mind's component that we appreciate. Now, spirituality, that's the state of affairs for most of us. Spirituality is walking that back out. Because at the basis of a spiritual journey is the word interconnectedness. The heart, although the mind has created an ever smaller corridor for itself, the heart remains very connected and has never created a boundary at all. And there's this sense in each one of us, whether we recognize it or not, it is there, a natural and authentic sense that we are not what we have perceived ourselves to be. And that sense of the heart being something greater, much beyond the limitations of how the mind has defined itself, begins to express itself in a spiritual search. That spiritual search, the job of the spiritual search, of a spiritual practice, is to move into those boundaries which were created through resistance, not through fact, remember. Concepts, not through fact. Not through the fact that I am really up here, but because I've created a boundary in which I am most um, comfortable within a smaller and smaller holding of what I call me. And the heart asks us to do just the reverse. It asks us to go to those boundaries and start dissipating them, start looking at whether they're true or not. Develop a a degree of safety and trust to be able to cross over those boundaries and to begin to open and expand ourselves back up to what we really are, which is not the enclosed sense of ourselves, but the united and interconnected expression of the universe. To do that, we are forced to look at how we have projected those components that are really us outside of ourselves and then held those forces at bay. For instance, Let us look at particular aspects of our psyche that we do not like, like hatred or anger or whatever might be expressing itself. How the mind cuts itself down the middle, draws a line and a boundary, since it can't separate out those forces, those mind states, and put them actually 
away and detach them, itself from them, it throws them out in an imaginary projected style. It says, I don't have these qualities any longer. You have them. And then it reacts to you having the state of mind that is actually owned by me. And then I can hate you rather than having to hate myself. That creates the world of duplicity, of separate entities and things. And so the job of the meditator is to go to each one of those areas of resistance where we hold reality and cut ourselves off from it and to heal ourselves at those boundaries and to come back and rejoin the true reality. But we're never going to rejoin rejoin the the reality if we don't think it's safe. We have to feel that it's trustworthy to be able to do that. We originally separated ourselves out because we didn't believe it was trustworthy. We didn't have faith in the fact that we could live with our anger, with our jealousy, with our envy, with our whatever we might be projecting away from ourselves. And what we're doing in this retreat is just that. We're, we're witnessing the entire cross-section of mind and finding that there's nothing there that we need to be frightened of. The only fact that we need to be frightened of, in fact, is our opinionation is what we think about something, not what it really is. And it, in fact, is that opinionation, that judgment that has created all the boundaries in its concentric circles away from ourself. So, what I call reclaiming that interconnection That interconnectedness is radical accountability. And radical implies just that, that there is no outlier. Now, first of all, radical accountability is accountability to all our perceptions. For instance, you could say, I pain myself. I anger myself. I depress myself. It's that radical. It does not say or blame any object external to it for the state of mind that it is having. It's that it has to be hermetically sealed. It has to be absolutely airtight because if there is even a single concept that is not qualified, that is left unqualified, that is left externalized, then there is heaven and hell forever to be lived within. And people like to bring up some factor, some person, some event that they just cannot accept. Like often I call it the Hitler factor. Fine, I, I'll, I accept that fact, but don't ask me, uh, the hatred I have for Hitler, don't ask me to uh, not, that it's his fault, not, I don't have to justify that hatred. Unfortunately, we do. We do. 
I mean, whose emotion is it? We have to be accountable to what this organism is manifesting. We're not saying that what is occurring is skillful from, by any means, but the emotional reactivity that we're feeling about what is occurring is entirely ours to be accountable for. Surely we have to see that. And there's no escape from this. This is hermetically sealed. It has to be airtight to awaken. And those of us who feel that we are progressing along the path, I ask you, how airtight is your blame? Is your judgment? Is your projection on what you know the other person to be feeling, thinking? How can we end suffering unless we are accountable to the cause? See, as soon as we blame, we have negated the Four Noble Truths. And we also begin to see that as we stop resisting the boundary formation, as we become more inclusive, we feel more connected. We feel more a part of the web of life and less isolated, less corridored off from that web. And accompanying that is happiness. In fact, the Buddha said this is a path from happiness to greater happiness. And so what we thought was the protective stance in the right one in the small corridor of my safety was in fact the most isolating, painful place to be. Now it's interesting because sometimes people in trauma can get thrown beyond their established boundaries. And it was in a retreat some years ago here Sometimes yogis come in and tell you a story that you just cannot hold. It's so cataclysmic. And one such story occurred to me. A woman came in, and she was grieving. Uh, She was grieving her, I think, seven- or eight-year-old son. And she told me the following story. Her son was playing on parallel bars at the school playground. And the, he lived only a few houses away from the school. <clears throat> so he's up on the parallel bars. And then the, sort of the class bully grabs his legs and pulls him off the parallel bars, and he falls and cracks his skull. He gets up. He runs home. He grabs his mother and dies in her arms. She's telling me this. But let us hold our contempt for a moment. What does this woman do two weeks later? Because she is hearing how the class is treating this boy who did this to her son, the perpetrator, she goes to the class 
and she says to them, I want you to befriend this boy as if it were my son. This, there, is a much, there has been enough tragedy in this situation. There will be no more. You will treat this boy as a friend. Now I'm listening to that, and I just can't believe what I'm hearing. How could anyone who has had such a, such a unfathomable loss respond with such an unquestionable heart? And then she said, I, have no, I had no other choice because I saw that there was no difference between the bully and my son. The barrier and the separation had been eliminated. Now, I hopefully, most of us do not have to go through such trauma to end our boundaries. But if we want proof of what happens when boundaries end, we can look at such cases as that. The problem when we stop blaming others for our difficulties is that there's a very nice fix to that problem, to the blaming problem, and that is to blame ourselves. Well, if it's not them, then it must be me. And we, in this culture, kind of like that better anyway. Because that's what we really believe is at the heart of most problems, is our inadequacy, is our deserving sense of punishment. And so to have it so available to us, that we take advantage of that. And so we can get very heavy and burdened within our meditation practice when we feel that we can no longer blame but we have the perfect person to blame ourselves. But the Buddha didn't allow that. He didn't permit that. Because he showed that what we were was the sense of storyteller that was created from the boundaries. And that once we refused to establish boundaries... We ended the story, and therefore the storyteller ended along with it. So there really isn't someone who we can point to and say, you are the cause of it all. In fact, he went further than that. He talked about codependent arising. Codependent arising is a, is a beautiful understanding of how things arise together. For instance, it's snowing outside or close to it. What conditions have to be present for snow? Well, there has to be a certain humidity and there has to be a certain temperature and probably other conditions that I'm not aware of, but at least those two. And so we say that given those conditions, humidity and temperature, snow will 
fall. And so that is the codependent arising of snow. But we, but wait just a second here. What is it that causes this particular front, movement of weather, to be here at this particular time? And what is it that causes this humidity and this temperature to be present in its exact at this particular time. I have read that to be any more um, precise in terms of climate and weather forecasting, you would have to know the little ripples of eddies and and wind currents that each of us uh, produce as we move through the environment. In fact, you would have to know the currents that the butterfly wing causes upon the air in order to exactly replicate how the patterns of weather are going to unfold. So we begin to see that every condition has multiple conditions behind it and that all things produce one thing. So if all things are codependent upon everything arising, what are we going to blame? Where are we going to point the finger? Where is our accusation? And the deeper we get into our meditation, the more we see this codependent arising to the point where There is no center for anything. It's all center. I saw a bumper sticker making that point recently. It said, I blame it all on the butterfly in Argentina. (laughs) now there's something actually I want to bring in here that isn't a part of this talk but I think it's important just to name and that is when we begin to see at that level see that is really forgiveness that holds forgiveness within its understanding Because we see that the expression of me and what I do in this moment is not, it's codependent arising. It has multiple facets, multiple conditions. And that in fact there is no other way I could act in the moment I am acting other than the way I am acting. Because it's a manifestation of not only my internal conditions but also the external conditions and it all arises together. And there is a tremendous burden and sense of relief when we see from a lack of self-responsibility, but with radical accountability. Now there's some other, there's something else I want to talk about, and this is I think this is actually the most exciting part of the talk. Not that any of it is going to 
thrill you. <laughs> but there's another component that absolutely shows you radical accountability. And that is the difference between perception and recognition. Now, when we hear this, just listen to the sound of it. That is perception. Now, if that perception occurs at the end of a sitting, there is recognition of what that perception means, isn't there? It's time to get up. It's time to walk or whatever. But one is completely mind-driven. That's the recognition. The other is not mind-driven at all, and that's the perception, right? The sound itself is not driven by the mind. It's just the seeing. As Buddha once said, in the scene, there is just the scene. In the herd, there is just the herd. What the mind does to that herd is an internal response to the perception. Right? Every feeling, emotion, mood, everything we have that is not in the perception is entirely mind-produced. All of our reactivity, all of our motions, everything that we see and interpret from and about life, everything hermetically sealed, mind-produced. Nothing holds that in truth. It is how the mind reads the situation. To begin to discern the difference between perception, recognition, oh, that's the bell that signals the end of the sitting. Mind, to know the difference between perception and mind. What is mind we have to be accountable for? It's not you that's doing it, it's my mind that is coloring the scene and interpreting it in this way. We are accountable to the mind and its interpretation. Now that is very interesting because when you listen, you see now, how you interpret what is heard is the story of the perception, isn't it? It's the meaning. It smooths out the perception. It makes the perception relevant to something. The perception itself is not smooth. It's what it is. In fact, it has no meaning paired with it at all. An interesting point in science. The neurological pathway for perception is exactly the same neurological pathway as recognition. They are simultaneous. And unless we discern it, it cannot be separated. We don't know whether we're listening or whether we're recognizing. But awareness has the capacity to know that difference. 
It has the capacity to know the difference between perception and what it recognizes that perception to be. Therein lies the path of freedom. We can know the difference between perception and what the mind does to that perception. So the perception is the unconditioned. The recognition is the conditioned reference. One is the horizontal storyline of what this means. The other is a vertical statement of meaninglessness. Because we're afraid of the chaos of meaninglessness, we go to the horizontal explanation. In exactly the same way as the microscopic, chaotic universe of quantum mechanics needs to be covered over and soothed with a conceptual overlay of thought. So what does that mean for us? Well, first of all, it means there's a way out. But the mind isn't going to be able to determine that way out because it can't distinguish the difference between recognition and perception, you see? Because it's the same neurological pathway. Now, what can distinguish? Awareness. Unless we make perceptions conscious, aware, we'll never be able to know whether we're thinking about something or whether the unconditioned relevant perception is occurring. That's not just true of hearing, it's true of every sense door. So the first thing we have to do is have a correct orientation to experience itself. We have to be correctly aligned to it. If we just use the experience to reaffirm something about us, which is how many of us use our meditation, we're using the recognition factor of the experience and not even listening to the perceptual quality. And therefore, we stay within the horizontal explanation and we remain deadened to the unconditioned. That is why we constantly articulate the instructions, relax, observe, and allow. And we've had many permutation, variable, variations of that. But basically, those have been the instructions all along the way. Relax, meaning the very resistance to make something mean something beyond what is perceived is created through the tension and the fear of it being meaningless. 
relax. Observation, to instill the awareness to a perception, to an experience, so that we know the difference between the recognition and the perception of that experience. Observe. Allow so that we don't corridor off or establish more boundaries of protection, needless protection, to any experience whatsoever. And then we eliminate the boundary. Allow. And being accountable to what the mind is doing within the experience no matter how much the person next to us is sneezing or coughing or moving, the irritation is not about that other person. That's each one of ours recognition and the accompanying story associated with that recognized pattern. The second quality task that I would I find useful is when I find myself creating a problem external to myself because I haven't fully accommodated the recognition and the perception that I'm getting lost in the story of blame really is I say to myself not to T-W-O not to Not to. It cuts it. This is radical accountability. No leakage. Not if you, not a freedom. Not if you're interested in liberation. Not if you're interested in awakening. We don't have time. Not to. Now sometimes the story can be so compelling that especially if there's an abusive history, so I want to bring in a lot of leniency here. I'm not suggesting being tough and hard. Sometimes the story needs a lot of extrapolation, needs a lot of Therapeutic intervention needs a lot of recovery so that we can own it. And I'm not suggesting that we are the, we have to be accountable to the enormous impact that abuse might have on us. So I want to ameliorate a little bit that, that airtightness for people who have had tra- trauma. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes warmth of heart. It takes kindness to do this and to fall back into allowing the natural expression of anger towards whatever person experience occurred. Fine. That's part of the healing of it all. But in another time, we will understand the importance of not allowing any seepage whatsoever. So for those of you who have been badly scarred, in your own time, just listen to it as a conceptual path for you now. 
in your own time come to this. But for some of us who feel healthy and strong and ready, let us ask a very a deafening question to this story. Is this story true? Not in terms of past actions or what occurred, not from the horizontal plane, but from the perception we can ask about the recognition. We cannot ask, if this true, from the recognition to the recognition. It's just the story repeating itself. But from the perception of the story, you can ask whether that story is true. And the perception will always show us that it is not. In the moment, it is occurring. The third task, you might say, to unraveling the boundaries is to look at the pain of the projection that we are trying to avoid. Look at what it is, look at the symptom of of what we're trying to displace in ourselves and give to someone else. Look what we're trying to give away in ourselves and bring that back full front, to acknowledge that it's in this organism, it's in this brain. Let me see it. I want to see this. And this is the cutting sword of Manjushri. This is the courage that it takes because we have to own all of the ways that we have given ourselves away. Pieces of our mind throughout the world. All of the ways we hate. And let me just show you a perfect example. I'll just say a simple name, Bush. All right, your laughter confirms it. See, we've given ourselves away there. We have become the man. So now something deep inside of us, a courage that perhaps is unknown to many of us, rises. And to look at the pain of the projection behind the symptom, the disease itself. And to hold that without any seepage whatsoever. And to be still with that as it arises without any story overlay, overflowing across this and through the seals through the keyholes and the latches and the wedges. No more. No more. And we feel our heart now. 
because when we have cut off the seepage, which is the very thing that has obscured the heart, then the heart comes out. The heart overflows. With what? With a sense of interconnectedness. Because the perception is known from the recognition. Which doesn't mean, as Carol pointed out last night, that you don't know what you see. What you see in terms of the recognition informs the perception so that you can still navigate the world and know your name. But it doesn't direct the perception so that the perception can only be what it is recognized to be. And therefore, it can be anything else and that too. And therefore, it can be nothing. And it can be still. This is a journey the great journey of the heart. I thrill at being able to be a part with all of you on this journey. Let us walk it together with sensitivity and grace. Thank you. Can we sit for just a minute? When you hear the bell, know the difference. Know the difference between what it signifies and what it is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.